you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror and the Jordan Peele-produced Twilight Zone reboot on CBS All Access in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the show, I'll be discussing A Hundred Yards Over the Rim. It's the 23rd episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally aired on April 7th, 1961. And I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater's Episode 5 of Season 1, entitled Yord. Okay, but first, before I get into my review this episode, I do want to talk about the uh, the Twilight Zone graphic novel. Um, so back when I reviewed The Odyssey of Flight 33, I mentioned that there were graphic novels made of t- The Twilight Zone. Um, <laughs> that's no secret. There's a bunch of different types of graphic novels and comics and everything for The Twilight Zone, but um, I think it was in the early 2000s, like 2002, I think... Um, there was a series of eight Twilight Zone episodes that were adapted into a graphic graphic novels, um, written by Mark Neese, uh, who has written for Batman and and other stuff. <laughs> so they ended up adapting adapting uh, the Odyssey of Flight Thirty Three, the After Hours, Walking Distance, Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, The Midnight Sun, Death's Head Revisited. The Big Tall Wish and Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up. Um, so I had, when I reviewed the Odyssey of Flight 33, I mentioned that I had ordered uh, the graphic novel counterpart and that I would report back. So here I am reporting back, um, finally, at long last, I finally sat down and read it. And read it. Um, so it's it's very good. Um, I really like it. I really like this concept of taking episodes of The Twilight Zone and adapting them to graphic novels. Um, the artwork is pretty cool. It's... Uh, it's pretty not photorealistic obviously but it's like it's pretty it's pretty realistic um in detailed enough to where you can differentiate you know obviously different passengers and everything um so the story deviates from the episode in some significant ways it expands the backstory or expands the story of the passengers by introducing subplots involving a couple of the passengers that it's funny because when I reviewed the Odyssey of Flight 33, the episode on here on the podcast, I had mentioned that I kind of wish that there was more with the passengers and how they were experiencing things. And reading that in the graphic novel kind of makes me thankful that they didn't do that in the episode, that Rod Serling didn't um, incorporate the any significant subplots with, with the passengers, just because it kind of took away from the... Um, 
the work that was being done in the cockpit, if you will, like the uh, commander and the navigator and, and ever, all the flight crew characters. Um, I remember when I watched the episode, I loved their interactions and everything. And part of that's due to the dialogue from uh, Rod Serling with the help of his brother, Robert, um, just making it super realistic and everything. But um, I don't know, just, just taking away from the, it's not even necessarily taking away from the flight crew, just, Switching off between the flight crew and the passengers kind of made it a little bit, made the story a little bit uh, more of a more of a drawn out story rather than being as uh, fast paced as it was in the episode. Having said that, the actual subplot that they introduced with the with the characters or in the uh, with the passengers was pretty interesting. I um, there's one part that is kind of it's a little bit ridiculous, but it's it's not that bad. But it's, it gives, it gives, I'll, I'll say this because I don't want to spoil it because it's, it's relatively cheap on Amazon. I recommend checking it out because it's, it's actually really good. And I'm hoping to get more, um, of those graphic novels as well. But the, with the, with the passengers subplot, they, uh, Mark Neese gives, I'll say gives one of the passengers a classic Twilight Zone, comeuppance if you will um that i really i really enjoyed quite a bit so um yeah that's the odyssey flight 33 written by mark niece um really cool and also one of the nice touches that it had at the end was that in the last page it just had a breakdown of the episode like the actual episode of the show it had like the character names the actors who played them and then a couple pieces of trivia about it at the end so i thought that was a really nice touch um all in all it's a really good well put together graphic novel and i'm looking forward to checking out the rest of the ones that were made back in i think like i said i think it was 2002 so, um, yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes and everything as well. So let's get on to a hundred yards over the rim. Uh, yeah. So here we go. Um, as, as normal, I will read a plot summary courtesy of unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Grahams Jr. So if you haven't watched a hundred yards over the rim, uh, go check it out and then come back and listen to the review. Cause I'm going to be spoiling everything starting now. So plot summary is. In the year 1847, Chris Horn leads a covered wagon, covered wagon train across the desert towards a promised land. Instead, the men and women have suffered exposure to heat and Indians, and Chris's eight-year-old boy is dying of pneumonia. In desperation, Chris walks, or Chris takes a walk over a rim about a hundred yards away from the wagons in search of water, and finds himself transported to 1961. Wandering into Joe and Mary Lou's airlift cafe and gas station, Chris meets the proprietors. Courtesy of a doctor, Chris is introduced to penicillin and learns there is a natural sp- spring just a short ways ahead. While the general practitioner believes Chris is suffering a delusion, the time traveler discovers in a book that his son will become a famous doctor. Realizing he has no time to hang about and meet the authorities, Chris races back out to the desert. Hurrying back over the rim, he manages to keep ahead of the pursuing police just in time to find himself transported to 1847. Handling or handing his wife the penicillin, he instructs her on how to administer the drugs and then assures them that the future looks bright. Back in 1961, Joe brings the rifle to Mary, which Chris dropped shortly before vanishing from sight. The gun has aged over a hundred years. 
This episode stars Cliff Robertson as Christian Horn. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. The next we'll see of him is in The Dummy in Season 3. He also appeared in Serling's Playhouse 90 episode Bomber's Moon, which I reviewed in episode 34 of the podcast. And, uh, oh, that yeah, he also appeared in Bomber's Moon. Um, <laughs> episode 34 of the podcast was my review of King Nine Will Not Return. Um, and obviously Cliff, Cliff Robertson is very well known to people around my age as playing Uncle Ben in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies from the early 2000s. However, he was also in the very first episode of The Outer Limits in 1963 titled The Galaxy Being, um, which I've watched and it's a good episode. Um, he would also go on to appear in the 1990s Outer Limits reboot in an episode from 1999 titled Joyride. And finally, he also appeared in the Adam West Batman series in the late 60s, where he played uh, the character Shame in five episodes. And uh, as Joe is John Crawford, which is this was his only Twilight Zone episode. He was a character actor who appeared in over 200 movies and TV shows um, spanning over 40 years. And apparently he was kind of typecast as a tough guy or villain character, which is interesting because he is not that in this episode. And playing Mary Lou is Evans Evans. This was her only episode of The Twilight Zone. Her last credited role was in 1944 or 1994 in an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Um, the only other piece of trivia I have for her is that she was the widow of John Frankenheimer. Uh, they were married back in 1963. And rounding out the cast as the Doctor is Edward Platt. This was also his only episode of The Twilight Zone. He was in one episode. He was also in one episode of One Step Beyond in 1959 called The Burning Girl. And he appeared in three episodes of The Outer Limits, uh, The Man with the Power, The Special One, and Keeper of the Purple Twilight. This episode was written by Rod Serling and directed by Buzz Kulik, who this is the fourth episode of nine that directed that were directed by Buzz Kulik. Uh, previous we saw from him was Static, and the next we'll see is in, I think, a couple of weeks with The Mind and the Matter. So this is the part of the episode where I usually talk about what I knew before going into this episode, but obviously... Um, I already knew, um, because I was a guest on Brandon Cruz's Submitted for Your Approval podcast, um, back in November of 2017, uh, to review this episode. So, um, I had already seen this before I started my notes for this episode of Anthology, but since that was well over a year ago, at this point it was like, what, a year and a half? Yeah, over a year and a half ago, um... I didn't really know what I remembered of the episode itself. <laughs> so uh, what I remembered is that the episode is about a caravan to the West, a caravan of wagons heading West. And I knew that I, I remembered there was something about a gun and time travel. And I was kind of surprised because I just didn't remember much about the episode. And I was kind of finding myself confusing parts of it with the battle of Buster Scruggs, the, uh, Coen Brothers uh, anthology movie that is on Netflix. So I was kind of um, excited to go back into the um, into this episode and kind of revisit it. I did listen to my episode where I guessed on uh, submitted for your approval and uh, beforehand. So I do have that fresh in my mind, but I just want to mention, I just, I love that podcast. Brandon is great. Please go check out submitted for your approval. It's, it's such a good time. So Going into my review of A Hundred Yards Over the Rim, uh, the first thing I noticed was that the Western music that plays at the beginning, uh, kind of, it felt like, 
I don't know. It reminded me a bit of the music in uh, Denton on Doomsday or Mr. Denton on Doomsday. Um, but I looked through Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic and I couldn't find the music cue. Like, it, it, they weren't, they weren't, it wasn't the same music. So, um, I don't know. It just felt like a very iconic kind of Old West scoring. Um, and it just brought me right into the setting and everything. So that was cool. So we're immediately introduced to Chris and his wife, uh, Martha, who is um, kind of presiding over her their son, who she says is on his 11th day of fever. And she says that he's not going to last much longer. And Chris says that's what she said on the third day. <laughs> um and he's just, he's clearly like unsure of, how, of what's going to happen and everything. And he's trying to assuage her, um, her fears, I guess. So then we get one of the people from, from the group come up. I think this was Charlie says that, um, Apache country is just due south and that they're hungry and sick and they were thinking of just turning back. And Chris is like, no, they're way, we're too, way too far into this journey. If we turn back, we'll die. Cause it's, if you want to go back the 15, 1500 miles, um, you can, but we'll, you'll die. And so they just, it's kind of setting the scene that this is, that they're low on water, they're low on su- supplies and they're just, they're just feeling, uh, feeling the, um, troubles of the, of the journey. And in this scene, like, um, well, Chris first, Chris first says that he'll find some water. Like he's, he's going to find water and he's going to find supplies and everything. And I just really like the way that Cliff Robertson plays the role. Like he's very commanding and he's confident and Chris's sense of duty toward the group is evident in the way that Robertson just delivers his lines in this first scene. It's just a really great way to establish the character and establish like the stakes of what's going on. Um, and I do want to mention that I kind of wonder if the uh, writers of Lost drew inspiration from this episode when they were breaking the White Rabbit episode from season one of Lost. Um, because both this episode and White Rabbit involve men under stress from a group of people that are depending on them for uh, to search for water and sustenance when they're far away from any hint of civilization. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just, that episode of Lost is fresh in my mind because on uh, Obsessive Viewer, me and my friend Kirsten are having... Um, are doing a project where we're introducing shows that we love to each other. So I'm showing her lost and she's showing me the Canadian cop drama flashpoint. Um, anyway, check that out at obsessiveviewer.com. But, um, yeah, I just kind of wonder, I, I don't know for sure if that's the case or anything, but it's just an interesting correlation that I had in this, uh, when watching this episode. So Chris says that he's going to kind of go ahead. He's going to scout ahead and try to look for water and, and food and, and anything to help out and try to get help for his sick son. And, uh, at this moment, this is kind of the more heartbreaking moment that kind of really like doubles down on establishing the stakes of what's, what's at, what's at stake here. Uh, as Martha says, um, that he should keep his eye out for a spot. And it's implying that she's, you know, telling him that um, he should keep an eye out for like a spot where they can bury their son when he dies. And I just really thought like I thought that that really helped establish the hopelessness of the situation in their eyes and kind of again, it's it's not like the stakes have been established. But at this point, we're really like like bringing home the emotional impact of, of what's what's at stake. So I, I kind of liked the way that that was written and established in this uh 
in this episode. And then with that, we go into our narration from Rod Serling. And I'm going to go ahead and play a clip from that here. The year is 1847. The place is the territory of New Mexico. The people are a tiny handful of men and women with a dream. Eleven months ago, they started out from Ohio and headed west. Someone told them about a place called California, about a warm sun and a blue sky, about rich land and fresh air. And at this moment, almost a year later, they've seen nothing but cold, heat, exhaustion, hunger, and sickness. This man's name is Christian Horn. He has a dying eight-year-old son and a heartsick wife. And he's the only one remaining who has even a fragment of the dream left. Mr. Chris Horn, who's going over the top of a rim to look for water and sustenance. And in a moment, we'll move into the twilight zone. So the narration ends with Chris going over the rim and seeing the power cables. And obviously it's very reminiscent of uh, of the episode from season one, I Shot an Arrow Into the Air. And after the commercial break... Um, we see like like the shot coming back from commercial is Chris standing with his back to the camera, just staring into the like new world he's wandered into. And so we see like in the background, we see the uh, power lines and everything. And it's just a very cool, well-framed shot that's echoed here in a little bit, which I'll get to in a second. But I just I just really like that as kind of establishing like he is in his own world now. Like he's in, he's in a different world and he's out of his element. So he turns around, sees that his group has left and and are gone. And he yells, he yells, where, where'd you go? Um, so, okay. First of all, just imagine the horror of that. Like that is, that alone is such an interesting kind of moment for this episode because it's, been well established that they've traveled for a long time and just imagine like traveling with a group for so long wander like going over a rim to to get help and get food and water and everything and medicine for your sick child who's dying and then turning back and they are they vanished like that is just horrific and i just i really like that and i kind of wish that the episode would have explored that a little bit more um but just that moment just was really interesting to me because I just put myself in Chris's position and I just thought, holy crap, that would be, that would be insane. That would, that would freak me out. So, but anyway, so his reaction is to ask like, yell, where'd you go? Um, and like I said, I kind of wish that there was more to his reaction. Like I kind of wish, part of me wishes that the episode, um, was more about Chris wrestling with the fact that he lost his group and, and, potentially let them down but i honestly don't know how it would have been able to fit into this episode so i don't know i just thought that it was there was there was something there that could have made it a little bit more impactful so he's walking uh he's walking through the desert and it's showing that he's walking kind of far um it just hammers the solitude and everything and i i really i really like the it's something that this episode does really well is that it, it just it I don't want to say it's a slow burn because that's kind of, I don't know, hacky, I guess, but it's kind of just, it slowly, it slowly goes through its pacing. It's, it's very, um, it's very contingent on the character, on the audience identifying and, and going along with the character's actions rather than being plot driven and everything. So I really appreciate it for that. I appreciate this episode for the way that it, it immerses us into Chris's journey as he's wandering through the desert and it's just again like i said um 
I think uh, an episode or two ago, like the Twilight Zone does a very good job of creating or like doing like single single scene or single character moments. I said that last week in long distance call. Um, just like just seeing Chris wander wander the desert alone is just so captivating and immersive that I just think that it's something that the Twilight Zone does really well. So he reaches a road, he touches the pavement, and then that's when a large truck rushes toward him and honks and everything. He dives out of the way. And that itself is reminiscent of execution from season one, but on a much smaller level. Um, and I also just want to point out the sound design in that moment was pretty cool. Like the, the way that the, um, trucks noise is just enveloping the sound of the scene is really good. And then after that, interestingly enough, we get a repeat, not a repeat, but another shot of Chris with his back to us center frame walking down the road. And both times that this has happened, and I don't think it happens at all like the rest of the episode, but it's just, again, it's just a really striking visual both times. And like this time it's more, it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition because the first time, the first time he's just standing like over the rim where he is and he sees just desert and then power lines as well in the shot. But now it's more like it's he's closer to the camera like he, like physically he's closer like it's a tighter shot of his of his back and we see a full road ahead of him and i th- want to say like a sign um maybe visible as well but he's it's showing that he is more um he is more deep into the 1961 future that he's wandered into and it also is an interesting way to showcase the anachronism of this man from the 1800s wandering through 1961 uh just a really striking visual and i really appreciated that uh, bit of cinematography in this episode so chris makes it to joe's air flight cafe um this roadside diner it's a beautiful location and i actually um, like the IMB, IMB, uh, IMDB trivia has like the coordinates for it, I think, or maybe it was Wikipedia. I don't know, but I looked it up on Google maps or on Google earth, uh, Google maps. Um, and, uh, it's still there. Like the structure's still there as of like November, 2018. Um, it's just deserted pretty much. I think it may be for sale, but, uh, it's interesting just to kind of do that. Um, <laughs> so the first interaction with Joe and Chris, Joe kind of laughs at Chris and like that's expected since he's dressed so ridiculously by 1961 standards. But I think it also kind of subtly misdirects us. If only for a brief moment, uh, makes us think that maybe Joe might be a threat to Chris. Um, it's kind of subtle and it's a throwaway tension, but also the fact that, uh, the actor who plays Joe is, has had been, I don't know if it was before this or not, but like he was kind of typecast as a villain character kind of, I can imagine like 1961 audiences would just for that brief moment think like, Oh, Chris is in trouble. Um, and that'd be an interesting way to kind of have this subtle tension for just a moment. So Chris is talking nonsense about a monster and I like that. It's, it's different enough from execution. Like in, in, in the season one episode execution, the time traveler, time traveler in that episode, I can't, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, he shoots the TV when he sees like a guy, like it's kind of comical. Like, um, it's a, it's an episode of television that has like a, a standoff and he shoots a TV. But like the confusion here of Chris thinking that the truck was a monster feels more, feels more, um, authentic to that type of situation. Um, and I like how, 
Joe eventually is like, wait, are you talking about the, the truck? It's like, it's an interesting way to showcase the, the divide between these two men and also kind of get them to a common, a common ground for at least a moment. So when they get into the diner, um, Joe asks how long Chris has been in the desert and he says a year and, just imagine how delirious you would seem to someone like Chris is pretty delirious in any case, but just like if you were at your, like if you, if you were at a roadside diner and you saw a guy just stumbling in out of, out of the desert dressed like he's from another century babbling about a monster that attacked him. And then you ask him like, how long have you been in the desert? And he says a year. Um, on one hand, yeah, it, it checks out. But on the other hand, it's like, just it would be such a bizarre situation that I think is uh, just a really interesting um, introduction to this episode, I guess. Okay, so Joe says that his wife Mary Lou will uh, look at um, Chris's wound because the gun had went off, had gone off, and and he got hit and he accidentally shot himself. Which I feel like in that scene with the truck, I didn't. It it was kind of a confusing. Uh, granted, there's a lot of stuff going on, but like I didn't. I never really noticed any times I watched it. I didn't really notice the gun going off, but that's whatever. So, um, they go in, they, they're in the diner. Mary Lou pours him some water and he, she hands them, he, she hands it to him in a glass. And it's interesting that Chris just kind of sniffs the water before drinking it. Um, which is, it's kind of weird because water's water, but, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. It was just interesting because he's such a, it showcases that he's that first of all he's mistrusting of everyone or of of these people that he's wandered into and i think the subtext of that is because he has a responsibility like he has a singular goal to get water and food for his for his group and he is wanting to save his son but he has been leading this this group of people across the country um with limited supplies for a year. So like he has this sense of responsibility that he is, that he, it's a very nice, subtle performance by Cliff Robertson. Like he's just, he has that undercurrent throughout his entire performance and I really appreciate it. So, um, in that case, I will say that Chris really lucked out stumbling upon genuinely compassionate people. Um, and it's that type of compassion that I really like about the twilight zone. Like we get a variety of different people in the show with all varying dispositions, of course, but when the show features compassionate or relatable people, it just, that's when it really shines for me, especially since so many episodes are morality tales, I guess like the, the combination of like morality tales with just compassionate, friendly people is just really, um, enjoyable for me. And so at this moment, uh, Joe tries to take the gun from Chris to look at it. He's like, Oh, that's an antique. Um, and my first thought is, wow, how inappropriate. Like, <laughs> like just, you just met this dude and you're like, Oh, Hey, look at this antique and reaches for his gun. I felt like that was a little bit, a little bit goofy or, or like, like it took me out a little bit because like they're compassionate people. It's like, Oh, he's just grabbing at his stuff. But. From Joe's perspective, there's an argument that can be made that the gun, first of all, the gun looks like an antique, so it kind of tracks, but he does know that the gun has gone off and Chris accidentally shot himself, um, which would signal to Joe that it isn't decorative. However, my devil's advocate kind of thought process on this is that um, 
this could be a way for a way that Joe is trying to disarm Chris because Chris is clearly delusional and potentially a danger to himself and maybe others. Um, and if that's the intention of this episode or of this line from everything, I think that, um, first of all, I don't think it's very clear in the episode, but there's enough there to give the theory some weight. And if that was the intention, it's, it's nice and subtle. So Chris tells Joe that the gun has been used a lot. And, um, it's just, it's interesting, like, again, going back to Cliff Robertson, playing Chris as the leader of this group of people who is, has a responsibility toward him. Like, it's all, he's not standoffish. Like, he's not completely standoffish, I should say. Like, he's not, he's not dangerous in his quest to get the supplies and everything. He's just, he's testing, testing the waters, as it were. And, yeah, I just, I just like the kind of vaguely threatening kind of way he says that it's been used a lot. And so Mary Lou says, well, it's not hunting season, um, which goes to show like the, just the disparity between them or the distance between the characters that, you know, he's from 18, uh, the 1800s and they're from the 1900s. Um, and Chris asks if they have any Indians and, the kind of confusion and time disparity in this moment is, is starting to crop up in this moment. And I really like the pacing of it. And I like how it's just, just really like, that's where the tension is from. It's like the tension of when Chris will realize that he's in another, he's in another time. And when Mary Lou and Joe will realize that, Oh, this guy is actually from another time. Um, it's just, it's like this subtle kind of tension to the drama. It's, it's more dramatic tension and not like, uh, suspenseful tension, if that makes any sense. It's, it's kind of character tension, I should say. And so Chris looks over at the jukebox and that kind of harkens back to execution as well in season one. Um, this episode is kind of a unique, kind of interesting mirror to that episode in many ways, which I think is kind of fun because that's actually, uh, <laughs> execution and, uh, a hundred yards over the rim are the two episodes that I've been on for Brandon's uh, submitted for your approval podcast uh, to review. So I thought that was interesting. So, um, so yeah, he like Joe tells Chris like, Oh yeah, that's a jukebox. And uh, then he tells him that there's a natural spring nearby and that there's game. And then like that kind of seeds the like hope for, um, for Chris. And so Mary Lou gives him penicillin and, um, I just, I kind of like that, like them teaching him about penicillin, but I really like how Cliff Robertson plays Chris. Like, again, I'm just kind of louding praise upon Cliff Robertson, but, um, he has this kind of confusion to his face and he has this distant, like almost vacant look, but he's not like, he's not playing it like he's stupid. Um, he's not playing it like he's just a dumb person who has wandered into this other time that he has no understanding of. Um, it's just, again, it's so, naturalistic the way that he's defensive like there's a subtlety to the way that robertson gives chris the impression of working through what's going on in his head rather than reacting to this modern modern world he's in um like he's not just a blank-faced moron (laughs) he's like you can you can kind of see the gears turning in every scene where they have a tight shot of cliff robertson fit cliff cliff robertson's face um, you can see the gears turning in Chris's mind as he's putting together like what's what's going on in his in his life right now. And so he starts to explain or pieces together his story. 
And then he asks how long they've been there. They say two years and that they used to live in Phoenix. And so that's when Chris looks at the calendar and is shocked to see the painting of covered wagons and a man on horseback. And he looks down and sees that the date is September of 1961. He tells them that it's... Okay, so in this moment, he tells them that it's... No, that's not right. It's 1847. And that's when Mary Lou drops the water and the glass shatters. And... I, I like that moment because it would have been so much easier and more dramatic or more cheaply dramatic um, to have her do like kind of that classic like scream that happens at the end of an act break uh, when they want to build up tension. But dropping something keeps the drama and tension at the appropriate level because like I said, the tension in this episode is born out of the characterization and, and the character's journey rather than the situation that they're in. So. To have the act break with a glass breaking instead of like, of like her screaming in terror at the fact that he just said that he's from the past, um, was really cool. Like, I, I like that kind of level of restraint, um, in the storytelling here. Um, because again, like, this is an episode about a man discovering hope and purpose when he and his friends and family are at their most desperate. It's a very internal theme for Chris. And if the drama at the end of that act had been heightened in any way, it would have taken away from that narrative, in my opinion. Okay, so after the glass shatters and everything, Chris kind of starts reeling from the realization and he has a bunch of questions. I'm going to go ahead and play a clip here. Who are you? Who are you and where am I? Where is this place? Where am I? So we get our act break, and I like that this experience is giving him kind of an existential crisis, um, even though it's not really followed up on that much, uh, to an extent. He, yeah, like he's saying, like, who, who are you and what am I? <laughs> um, I just, I like that. It's, I thought that was a nice touch to the dialogue. So after the act break, we get the introduction of the doctor. He has seen Chris and talks with Joe and diagnoses Chris as being malnourished, among other things. Um, and I feel like this is sort of a leap in time in the episode. And I kind of think that maybe there could have or should have been a scene or even just a line of dialogue where maybe Joe or Mary Lou says that they're going to call the doctor. Um, I don't remember there being a line to say that. So when we get back from the act break, it's kind of a surprise that like, oh, not only have they called the doctor, the doctor has seen Chris and Chris has been apparently sequestered to a back room. And I don't know, it just kind of feels a little, a little bit like a narrative leap. Uh, maybe there was a deleted scene or something. So he compliments Chris's physique, which is normal. Like he says that he's a fine specimen, um, which makes sense because, you know, dude's been outdoors for a year. Um, and so, uh, the doctor kind of notes Chris's perfect recall of what he refers to as his imaginary life. And he mentions the dental records, the antique gun that was manufactured a year ago. And I like this scene as a whole between the doctor and Joe and Mary Lou, because it reminds me a bit of the end of psycho where, uh, the doctor is talking about Norman Bates's uh, psychosis. Um, <laughs> And everything. So, but what I really like about it is just it's this rational conversation about an irrational situation. And I, I really like that. And so the natural kind of conclusion that the doctor comes to is that he calls the authorities, um, with the intention of just saying that, hey, there's a man here that who needs assistance, who needs 
who needs to be looked after. And that element kind of reminds me a little bit of mirror image like that in the sense that the threat isn't necessarily the potential delusion that the character is experiencing, but instead the threat is that the authorities will take that character and commit them or put them in a place where they don't want to or need to be given the scenario that's been laid out in the twilight zone. Um, and I just, I, I kind of like how, again, it's this, the tension is built on what will happen to the characters. And it's not like a, it's not a plot heavy tension, uh, in no uncertain terms. So at this moment, Chris emerges from the back room holding a book. And this is another situation where I kind of feel like there could have been more to this or more build up toward this. Cause it kind of feels jarring, but he found an encyclopedia and looked up his son and the encyclopedia re- reveals that Chris's son was a pioneer in the field of child medicine. And my issue with this is that it's too centered on advancing the plot. Like in an episode where I've, heaped praise upon the way that the tension is built through a character perspective rather than uh, rather than the narrative as a whole or the plot. Um, it just doesn't feel like a genuine narrative beat to suddenly have this encyclopedia with the information that the character needs or uh, information pertaining to the character himself. Um, I just kind of feel like that's, it was a little bit of a narrative leap that I just couldn't really buy into. But the... This situation in the plot fills Chris with a sense of destiny. And again, like I found that clunky because of the narrative beat and it's almost a deus ex machina in a, in a sense that Chris suddenly comes out of the room with the encyclopedia, though I have to admit that I have no idea how the story could have necessarily been fixed without significantly changing the episode. Um, because uh, Unless they just had like one scene where they introduced the encyclopedia or maybe they they could have had... I don't know. I I don't know. It's not for me to troubleshoot what uh, minor complaints I have with this episode. So um, I just feel like it was a kind of clunky way to get to this moment where Chris has this sudden new, 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 uh, newfound sense of destiny. Um, And also in this moment, I got another lost vibe um, from this episode. Like I kind of wonder again, if the uh, writers of lost kind of drew inspiration from this episode for, kind of the overall um, themes of this episode or for, for their show. But I kind of really wonder if some of the themes of free will and fate that were explored so heavily within throughout Lost's entire run and some of the time travel concepts that were in later seasons of the show, I kind of really wonder, again, if they drew their inspiration from this episode of The Twilight Zone specifically. Or, on the other hand, maybe it's just not as unique a sci-fi concept in general, <laughs> at least by, like, 2004 when Lost premiered. But, like, I mean, I could see that, like, here in 1961, it's probably um, fresh and everything. But, like, 50 years later, um, I could see being, I could see maybe Lost being just, you know, maybe not using this particular episode as a ground, uh, as a, as a blueprint, but kind of having science fiction in general who has that has been inspired by this episode to to kind of guide them so the doctor wants to stop chris from leaving because he wants chris to be well and i really buy into that so because chris says that he's leaving because he needs to get back to his back to his group and like this scenario where they have the doctor like like trying to keep Chris at the diner. Um, I felt like that was a really interesting situation because the doctor has a rational and normal view of what help means for Chris. Yet Chris's idea of being well is to get back to his wagon. And it's just an interesting way to present conflict in the episode, because like I said, this is a 
character-driven drama rather than plot-heavy. And everyone involved in this in this scenario really do want what's best for the situation, and, but they have just wildly different viewpoints. And it's something I really appreciate about this, um, really this climax of the episode. Um, it's... Like it's not a, it's like I said, it's not a highly dramatic episode, but it's it's the culmination of the emotional um, conflict of the episode. And I I like it. Uh, so Chris leaves. He escapes and runs. He runs down the road, and like the shot of him running down the road is vaguely, again, very vaguely reminiscent of Mirror Image for me, um, to to a small extent. Like I'm probably reaching with that comparison. But as he's running, he's chased by the police. They find him give, and give chase through the desert. Uh, and the suspense is solid there. It's, it's, it's solid. And we see that, Chris, that Joe is with the sheriff as they, as they run toward the rim. Chris makes it over the rim and back to 1847. He lost the gun but still has the medicine. And uh, yeah, so Chris gets back to the caravan and asks Martha where they went. And that's when we get the reveal that Martha's like, did you forget something? Because you were only gone for a few seconds. And I thought that, like, as a time travel device, I like this a lot. Like, this episode of the show uses time travel really well. And it's just, it's a straightforward device. It's just, there isn't much in terms of kind of confusing, um, confusing uh, audience, the audience or anything. Just a clear-cut, straightforward time travel story. And I really appreciate it for that. Um, so we get kind of the denouement of the episode with, uh, Chris telling his group that everyone's going to be, that they're going to be okay. Um, the kid is going to have to take this medicine and he'll be fine. We've got water coming soon. Um, and we're going to be okay. And he tells Charlie that, you know, the future is going to be like, we're heading toward a bright future and it's going to be, it's the future is going to be made because of what we're doing and the people like us who are doing this who are going through this for our families and everything. And I thought that was a really nice sentiment. Um, on uh, Submitted for Your Approval, my guest appearance on that podcast, um, Brandon and I had wondered about Chris's use of the word highways in that moment when talking about when talking to Charlie about the future. He says, like, there's going to be highways and stuff. Um, and uh, we didn't really come to come – to, um, a conclusion on that podcast about whether or not like highways was really in use there. But I did look up for this episode that per Miriam Webster, the first known use of the word highway was before the 12th century. And I think in my head, I had kind of equated highways with interstates and like the interstate road system. Um, and so I think that's where the confusion came in, but highways was um, accurate in terms of, uh, the dialogue in this episode. So we get our final scene and cut back to the diner. The police officer drops off Joe, or I mean the, just the sheriff drops off Joe and says, Hey, don't worry, we'll find him. Um, and so <laughs> Joe walks into the diner and he tells, he tells Mary Lou like, Hey, I found, I found his rifle, but it's aged like a hundred years. And, uh, I really like the way that it's, it, I really like that because like they're looking at the rifle and they're like, they're so confused. Like, and I love that confusion because they're so, it's not like this, they're so kind of dumbfounded or dumbstruck by it, but it's not like they're affected by it in any, any, any certain way. Like they care for Chris because this guy just stumbled into 
into their life and they tried to help them. But it's just an interesting way to leave these characters like kind of with a, a hint that, you know, he's okay. And it's just a very bizarre kind of thing. I, I love when the, when the show does this where they have characters just, ha- just living in the confusion of what the Twilight Zone has, has delivered to them. And it's just a really cool, um, end to the episode. And then actually the actual end of the, um, episode is Chris, you know, saying like, Hey, we're, we're moving forward. My son's got a lot of hardware or a lot of good things to do in California. And, uh, it's great. So I don't know. I, I really liked it. Um, I just, it's such a nice sentiment to end on the whole thing about, um, his people, like the people that are making this, uh, trek to California being the people that will build the, the new world for them, essentially. Uh, it's just a really nice sentiment. And then we get Serling's closing narration, um, where he talks about Chris being a, um, kind of celebrating Chris as a, as an, as an explorer and everything. So here is Serling's closing narration for a hundred yards over the rim. Mr. Christian Horn, one of the hearty breed of men who headed west during a time when there were no concrete highways or the solace of civilization. Mr. Christian Horn and family and party heading west after a brief detour through the twilight zone. And that's the episode. I, you know, I really, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, it's, it's not a standout episode um in any extent um it's it's a pretty it's a pretty okay or or solid episode um it's just it's really good um but it doesn't really stand out and everything i really like the use of time travel and everything but it's just it was it was a pretty good episode it was it was solid Uh, that's what i'll say It's, it's solid so I have some trivia for this episode. Cliff Robertson prepared a detailed treatment for his character um, and did a lot of research about the time period of the 1840s. And he concluded that an Easterner like Chris would have worn a stone stonepipe hat. And Buzz Kulik apparently thought that that would make the character look too comical and wanted him to wear um, a more a more historically ambiguous um, Stetson hat. And the dispute was, um, (laughs) according to trivia, the dispute was finally taken to producer Rod Serling, who, after hearing both sides, decided to let Robertson wear the stovepipe hat as seen in the filmed, filmed version. So that's pretty cool. I think it worked too, honestly. Um, it, he has a distinctive look. Um, I can see it being kind of looking a little bit comical, but it's still pretty solid. Uh, Lara, it's really, uh, it fits, it fits well. And so, yeah. Okay. So in the trivia on IMDb, there is a, there is a mistake. Um, the trivia, I think on IMDb says that JJ Abrams has said that this episode was his personal favorite out of the whole series, which is wrong. Um, (laughs) JJ Abrams, favorite episode is actually walking distance from season one. And he is quoted, uh, in, in a, uh, October 2009, um, entertainment weekly, or entertainment, or it's, oh, I'm sorry, it's time.com, uh, article that I just realized, oh, okay, that's cool. Um, they did like a top 10 Twilight Zone episodes, um, on October 2nd, 2009, which was the Twilight Zone's, uh, 50th anniversary. So anyway, in that article, which I'll link in the show notes, he, uh, JJ Abrams is quoted regarding walking distance as saying, 
it's just this beautiful story of a guy who, as an adult, wants to go back to his young self and tell himself to be aware of what it is to be alive, to be young, and to enjoy that. And of course, you can never go back and tell yourself that. It's a beautiful demonstration of the burden of adulthood told in The Twilight Zone, which everyone thinks is a scary show, but it's actually a beautiful show. <laughs> the Twilight Zone, at its best, is better than anything else I've ever seen on television. And uh, he even had like a walking distance reference in his movie Super 8, like the military code name for the evacuation in the movie was Operation Walking Distance. So I could see how someone could get confused and put this piece of trivia for 100 yards over the over the rim because they're both about people who wander into a different time. Um. So, yeah, but final piece of trivia is that this episode was filmed around the same time as the Rip Van, Rip Van Winkle caper. That's going to be a fun episode to, to review with my dumbass not being able to pronounce it or say it. Uh, but the truck that almost hits Chris is the exact same truck that the guys in the Rip, Rip, Rip Van Winkle caper, seriously, this is going to be a nightmare next time, uh, used to transport the gold. And it's kind of fun to think, like, it would be interesting to think that, like, both of these episodes take place in the same, in their own same universe. Like, like I just imagine like the truck that's, that almost runs down. Chris is actually the truck of the, of the robbers from, or the thieves in Rip Van Winkle, um, going to their destination. Um, I just think that would be, that's, that's a cool, like kind of piece of headcanon for me. Um, so yeah, so that'll do it for my review of a hundred yards over the rim. Um, like I said, solid episode. I enjoyed it and I enjoyed talking to Brandon about it like a year and a half ago. So check out submitted for your approval. And yeah, so I'm going to round out this episode with, uh, as I have been recently, a bonus review of an episode of science fiction theater. Uh, this episode is season one, episode five titled Yord. It aired on April 30th, 1955, and it is available in its entirety on YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes of this episode. Okay, so in the pre-show for this episode of Science Fiction Theater, the host Truman Bradley is demonstrating this kind of self-typing typewriter. It's kind of a, a kind of a proto-voice-to-text device. Um, like he's speaking into a microphone and the typewriter is typing out what he's saying. So it's pretty interesting to see that kind of technology in 1955. And he goes on to um, talk about the uh, a British-developed toposcope which uh records brain activity and like it's a it's a panel that lights up in certain areas uh as it's reading brain activity and so it leads leaves with the question of whether or not we can broadcast from our minds to others minds and that brings us into the episode uh the episode yord is uh let's see plot summary is the world's leading expert in telepathy dr lawton is rushed with his assistant to a military weather station at the north pole where the men there have suddenly become psychic. Uh, directed by Leon Benson and written by Leon Benson and George Van Martin uh, from a story uh, developed by George Van Martin and Ivan Tors, who was the producer of the show. Uh, star of this episode as Dr. Lawton is Walter Kingsford and co-starring is actually DeForest Kelly from Star Trek, uh, Bones McCoy. He has a uh, supporting role in this episode. He's in a bunch of episodes, I think. Uh, we'll find out more as we go through this. So <laughs> I go through this whole like idea that I have for we're reviewing science fiction theater. So anyway, um, I just bit my tongue and uh, it's introducing kind of mental telepathy. Dr. Lawton is, is experimenting with his assistant um, who has this kind of head apparatus that's on like, it's a, 
uh, one of the reviews on IMDb, like one of the user reviews says like, ah, oh, the old colander on the head trick. Um, and that's basically what it is like a colander, like attached to a head with wires coming out of it to demonstrate that it's, you know, recording brain waves, kind of like the, um, uh, kind of like the, a very, a, a smaller idea of the, um, device that Doc Brown is wearing when, uh, Marty McFly goes to see him in 1955 in Back to the Future. So, um, yeah, that's actually exactly what this is. <laughs> like that, that whole scene is like pre- pretty much the basis of the, not basis of this episode, but, um, playing on like the con constructs of what this episode does, uh, the science, science fiction aspect of this episode. So, um, what I thought was interesting is like the, the set, the props from the pre-show with, with Truman Bradley are actually used in the episode. Like the toposcope that, uh, he was demonstrating reading the brain, the brain waves, um, is actually in the episode. And I thought that was pretty cool. And so this colonel arrives at Dr. Lawton's office and is like, Hey, we need to take you to the North Pole. People are reading each other's minds. It's chaos. Um, there's a weather station where the men have become psychic. So the doctor is being taken there to investigate. And I kind of, I want to highlight this. I thought this was kind of comical in a sense, uh, just as a, like a, someone seeing this in 2019, this, this scene was pretty comical because, uh, the plane is transporting the doctor and his assistant, uh, who is played by a woman, um, into, to the North Pole. And the pilot, I think, is radioing to the weather station saying like, Hey, we've got, we've got people here to investigate what's going on. We've got Dr. Lawton and he's bringing a bunch of equipment and a real, uh, a real luscious babe with him. <laughs> and, He's like, uh, like I was kind of thinking, like, I wonder if he's like, he says, like he doubles down on it. He's like, yeah, she's a real luscious babe. And it's kind of like putting, like pointing out like, oh yeah, she's, he's bringing a woman. And it's just kind of, it's comical to me. Like, I know it's a different time and everything. So I'm not like going to dock at points for that or anything, but I just thought that it was funny. Um, and I just, I kind of thought that it was, I thought that it was going to be a misdirect, but it was, no, it was just 1955. <laughs> Um, so I was really curious at this point if there was going to be a scientific explanation for what's going on, because setting it up that way is setting it up for like, it's hard to science your way out of a story where it has people that are legitimately reading each other's minds. Um, and I won't spoil how the episode resolves itself or anything, but I will say that it goes into more science fiction than, than episodes past. So like that episode last week, when I talked about out of nowhere, with the bats, with the sonar and how they were, sci- they were sciencing out the, um, story. Um, I kind of thought, well, I wonder if that's the basis for everything that's going forward, but it is, there is some science fiction aspects to this and kind of fantastical elements, which I did appreciate and really enjoyed. So the way that the title comes into play is that the word Yord is being transmitted to them, uh, or at least to the assistant when she gets the, the, uh, um, headset on her head and they were, are they're tracking her stuff. The drama picks up when she is put into a telepathic trance in which she is broadcasting the word Yord to like everyone. And I thought it was really interesting. Like they used the toposcope recording the assistant's brainwaves and realized that there was a type of pattern to it. And they used the teletype from Truman Bradley's intro to assign letters to it. And they used Yord as the key to crack it. And so I won't say what they found, but um, they did kind of posit that um, 
they were thinking that it was a telepathic message from an alien spaceship. And at that moment, it kind of reminded me of uh, Stephen King's novel Dreamcatcher, which I just recently listened to on Audible, um, to an extent, because in that in that book, um, people are imbued with mind reading powers as the result of an alien invasion. So um, I kind of wonder if he drew any inspiration from this episode for that. But uh, like I said, I won't spoil it, but it does leave on a note of optimism. And uh, I enjoyed the science fiction element of it. Um, The kind of science fiction turn that it took was really interesting and enjoyable. And I kind of like how it ended and it was pretty cool. So (laughs) that's science fiction theater episode five. Uh, Yord. And next time on the podcast, I'm going to, well, the next main episode is going to be a review of the Rip Van Winkle caper. And my bonus review is going to be Stranger in the Desert, uh, which is science fiction theater's sixth episode of its first season. And in the meantime, before that, I'm going to have a review of the new Twilight Zone series, episode uh, eight, I think, Point of Origin. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I'm really hoping to get episodes pumped out this week so I can finish out my bonus review series of the new Twilight Zone, which by the way, I have kind of broken my internal um, rule and I have watched all of the episodes at this point of the original or the new Twilight Zone. And oh, that finale, my God, I like that's one of the reasons why I'm so um, eager to get the reviews pumped out so I can get to the end of the Twilight Zone season one uh, for 2019. Uh, is because I'm so, so excited to talk about Blurry Man. Uh, such an incredible episode. So yeah, stay tuned for that. And I think that'll do it for this episode of Anthology. So thank you guys so much for listening. Before I kick it to the outro, um, just want to say that if you want to support me on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And I'm really thinking hard about putting together some kind of uh, Patreon exclusive content for anthology listeners. Um, basically when you support, uh, what I do on Patreon, it gets you access to an exclusive RSS feed for Patreon supporters. Every time I release an episode of Obsessive Viewer or Tower Junkies, my Stephen King podcast, I put together a, uh, a recording of just me and the co-host kind of just goofing off and kind of just talking, kind of, kind of, uh, doing a kind of, warm-up recording before recording the main episode and that's kind of fun it's it's a fun little uh distraction and and everything it's a fun like exclusive content for listeners or supporters but i can't really do that because it would just like this podcast is me talking to myself so i was really thinking about either doing one of three things either recording commentary tracks for old episodes of the twilight zone that i've already covered um just because i really think it would be interesting to go back and watch like the first episode and the second episode and everything kind of do like a little commentary track so you can watch along with me um or doing like brief kind of similar to my bonus reviews of science fiction theater but like reviews of the 80s twi- uh, twilight zone um since it'll be a long time before i can do like a full like review series or like focus the main feed on that. Cause after the, the original twilight zone, I plan on going on to the outer limits or third would be, um, just kind of reviews of movies and shows that are similar to the twilight zone. So I don't know, I'm still kind of mulling it over. If I do any of that, it probably won't be until I get to season three of the twilight zone. So I've got like a month or two before I can, uh, or about a month and a half before I can really pull the trigger on that. So anyway, uh, I'm rambling. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time.
And now, here's a clip from a recent episode of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast from ObsessiveViewer.com. I, I want to learn more about Saeed. Mm-hmm. I want to learn more about Sawyer. He's not a character that oh, I, yeah. I would typically get into, like the, mm-hmm. the bad boy. You know? But he's such a it's, bad boy. Um, He's such a bad, bad boy. Um, But like, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I want to know his story. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think he's a bad guy. Okay. Interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, what leads you to think that? Is it the fact that they're lay- they're laying it a little bit thick that he's a bad boy of the island? Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it's like, I don't know. I just feel like there's more to him than that. Like, mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, he does help. Yeah. He does help them out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, maybe he's selfish and, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know, but I, but I just feel like there's more there. Yeah. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to anthologypod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. And follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at Facebook.com slash As Good As It Gets Band. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty!